So just a couple days ago, I was uh, sitting at my dining room table working on this sermon, in fact, and my son Judah was there in the dining room with me. He was pretending to work on his sermon for this weekend. Uh, He'll preach after the service, I guess. Uh, But uh, my daughters, Chloe and Clara, were working on uh, some homeschool work, and then my daughter, Abigail, was playing on the floor and just playing with some toys, and my wife, Hannah, was in the kitchen, um, and suddenly, Hannah walks in from the kitchen, and she yells out, what does Abigail have in her mouth? And as you can imagine, with four kids, you know, sometimes, you know, toys get left on the floor. I know that's hard to believe, but uh, sure enough, Abigail had located and put in her mouth this yellow plastic marble, uh, which was a bad idea. And so, as you can imagine, Hannah ran into the room as she's yelling this, and she runs over to Abigail, and she pulls this yellow plastic marble out of Abigail's mouth before she chokes on it. Now, I'm sure that with Hannah's stern voice, Abigail got a little frightened. And so what would possess my most of the time very kind wife to raise a stern voice to our daughter Abigail? I mean, how dare she speak so sternly to our sweet little daughter, right? Why would Hannah do this? Because she loves her. Hannah spoke sternly to Abigail and she extracted the yellow plastic marble from Abigail's mouth because she loves Abigail and she didn't want harm to come upon Abigail. And as parents, sometimes you have to discipline your kids, you have to speak sternly to your kids in order to teach them something, to teach them not to stick little plastic yellow marbles in their mouth. And as parents, we've learned that disciplining our children, even though sometimes it's hard, even though sometimes it hurts their feelings, it's necessary because we love them. And the reality is discipline, good discipline, is indeed a form of love. It's something that you and I all need. And as we continue our series here in the book of Lamentations, what we're going to see today in Lamentations chapter 2, our main subject really is the discipline of God. To be more specific, really, Lamentations chapter 2 is about the anger of God in disciplining us. And here in this shocking chapter, we're going to see just how far God is lovingly willing to go to discipline his people Judah, to awaken them to their need of repentance. Today we're going to see that God disciplines those he loves. Once again, open your Bibles up to Lamentations chapter 2, and we're going to see this, what is ultimately a challenging passage, but is also a comforting passage. That God even in his anger, as he brings this discipline on his children, the comforting thing we see is that he still listens for their cry of repentance. That God, even as he brings his anger, his wrath upon his children in disciplining them, he still listens for their cry of repentance. In your bulletin, you should have received an outline, and you can see we're going to break down Lamentations three or 2 into three parts. First, we're going to see a very vivid description, 
number one on your outline of the Lord's anger. The Lord's anger is a reoccurring theme that we see throughout the chapter, but we're really going to see it concentrated here under number one on your outline. And then we're going to see number two on your outline as a consequence of the Lord's anger, the Lord's discipline, we're going to see the people's agony. They are not going to like what the Lord is bringing about in their life. But then number three on your outline, we see the comforting part. We see the people's prayer. And that God, even then, is still listening for their cries of repentance. So again, grab your Bibles, open up to Lamentations chapter 2. Let me read first verse 1. Lamentations chapter 2, verse 1. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. He has cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel and has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. Now, right here in verse 1, I just want to pause for a moment and introduce you to a couple concepts we're going to see. Throughout Lamentations chapter 2, we're going to see two really big repeated words. The first really big repeated word that we're going to see is the word anger. And we see it here twice, just in verse 1. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger... And then at the end of verse 1, he's not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. We're going to see this word anger repeated over and over again in Lamentations chapter 2. I want you to take note of it when you see it. The second repeated word we see in Lamentations chapter 2 is the word daughter. And we see the word daughter here in verse 1. How the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. Throughout Lamentations chapter 2, we're going to see a repetition of this word daughter throughout Lamentations chapter 2. So be on the lookout for these repeated words. But here also in verse 1, I want you to see really the main characters that we're going to deal with here in Lamentations chapter 2. We see the daughter of Zion, which is the city of Jerusalem, the people of Judah. But the other main character we see throughout this passage is the Lord, the sovereign one, the Lord God of Israel. What's interesting here in verse 1 of Lamentations 2 is that when you see the relationship between the Lord God and the daughter of Zion, you see that the relationship right now is one of anger, not a relationship you might expect between God and his daughter. But notice here, interestingly, surprisingly, the Lord has covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger. I mean, picture in your mind a a cloud, a thick fog of the Lord's wrath consuming the people of Judah. There's no escape. He's cast from heaven to earth the glory of Israel. And he's not remembered his footstool again in the day of his anger. This, by the way, if you're a guest this morning, this is really setting the emotional context for pretty much the entire series uh, that we're going to see throughout Lamentations chapter 2. This is not a real uplifting message or series, but it's necessary. I'm convinced that 
uh, one of the weaknesses of the church worldwide today is that we've lost touch with the reality of God's anger. God is absolutely loving, no doubt. But he is absolutely wrathful towards sin and even sinners as well. Now, in verses 2 through 5, we see how the Lord's anger is really manifest. And what's going to surprise you here is as we read these verses, verses 2 through 5, I want you to take note of the repetition of the word he and his. Everything we read about in this chapter is ultimately coming from the hand of God. One might falsely think that the Babylonians are in charge as they're surrounding the city of Jerusalem and destroying the temple itself, but they're not the ones in charge. Everything that's happening is happening by the hand of the Lord God Almighty. Notice again the repetition of the words, he and his. Verse 2, the Lord has swallowed up. He has sp- not spared all the, in- all the habitations of Jacob. In his wrath, he has thrown down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought them down to the ground. He has profaned the kingdom and its princes. In fierce anger, he has cut off all the strength of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. And he has burned in Jacob like a flaming fire consuming roundabout. Verse 4, he has bent his bow like an enemy. He has set his right hand like an adversary and slain all that were pleasant to the eye in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his wrath like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces and destroyed its strongholds and multiplied the daughter of Judah, mourning and moaning. It's kind of a depressing picture of God, isn't it? Again, keep in mind the context here is the Babylonian besieging and destroying of the city of Jerusalem. But here in Lamentations chapter 2, poetically, again, this is a poem, it poetically pictures not really Babylon surrounding Jerusalem, but the Lord God himself. The Lord God himself is depicted as uh, an enemy of the people of Judah. The Lord God is betrayed like a warrior God, equipped with a bow and a strong right hand, pouring out his wrath on the daughter of Zion. The picture is clear. God disciplines those he loves. God disciplines those he loves. And in verses 6 and 7, we see just how far God was willing to go to open his people's eyes to the reality of their sin and to draw them back towards him in repentance. Notice verses 6 and 7. He, God, the Lord, has violently treated his tabernacle like a garden booth. He has destroyed his appointed meeting place. The Lord has caused to be forgotten the appointed feast and Sabbath in Zion. He has despised king and priest in the indignation of his anger. The Lord 
has rejected his altar. He has abandoned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of all her palaces. They have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of an appointed feast. Here, uh, Jeremiah is zooming in on the temple itself. Notice verse 6, the tabernacle. And we see the imagery continuing in verse 7, the altar, the sanctuary, the meeting place of God, the place where his glory once dwelt among his people. He, the warrior God, has destroyed it. He's destroyed the place where his glory dwelled. And he's even caused to cease the appointed feast and Sabbath in Zion. In other words, at the Lord's hand, both the place and the practice of worship have been destroyed because of the people's sin. God allowed pagan Babylonians to come in and utterly destroy the very place where he dwelt and where worship towards him was supposed to be conducted. I want you to flip back to the book of Jeremiah for just a second. Jeremiah chapter 7, we get a little insight into why this took place. Why in the world would God allow these pagan Babylonians to come in and utterly destroy the temple? the very place where the glory of God dwelt among his people. Why in the world would God allow these pagans to come in and destroy it? We get a little insight in the book of Jeremiah. Remember, Jeremiah wrote Lamentations. So Jeremiah chapter 7, let me read for you verses 3 through 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 3 through 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. But do not trust in deceptive words saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. See, what's sad about what took place is that the worship and the conduct, the lifestyle of the people of Judah got so bad. But they thought as long as they had the temple, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, they basically thought they could do whatever they wanted to do. The temple of God had itself, in one effect, turned into an idol. They thought, well, surely God will never destroy the very place where his glory dwells. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The temple of God, in many ways, became like a good luck charm or a get-out-of-jail-free card. They neglected the greater things of the law. But they thought, as long as we've got the temple, then we're fine. And so God allows the Babylonians to come in and utterly prove that theory wrong. He allows the Babylonians to come in and completely destroy his temple to remove even that, that get-out-of-jail-free card 
from their minds. God is allowing his own house to be destroyed so that his people would open their eyes and see the reality of their sin. Notice this destruction language continues in verses 8 and 9 of Lamentations chapter 2. Lamentations back in Lamentations 2, this destruction imagery continues. It says, the Lord determined to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He has stretched out a line. He has not restrained his hand from destroying. He has caused the rampart and the wall to lament. They have languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her kings and her princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Also, her prophets find no vision from the Lord. Notice here in these two verses, just the the master architect of the city of Jerusalem, God himself, he lays the blueprints before him of the city of Jerusalem. But he's here not to build, but now to destroy. The wall, the rampart, the gates, the bars, everything broken. All at the hand of the Lord. God is pictured here as determining, or you could say calculating, stretching out a line, which is an architectural term for measuring. Once again, demonstrating just how far he's willing to go. Destroying his own house, his own temple. To awaken his people to the reality of their sin. Have you ever wanted to discipline someone else's kid? (laughs) Not that you would, but have you ever wanted to? I remember a number of years ago, we were out on a little trip with another family from the church, and not this church, another church, and uh, <clears throat> just for the record, but uh, anyway, uh, we were out, it was kind of in the middle of nowhere, and uh, we had, I mean, there was like no TVs, no cell phone reception, it was a real vacation, so um, anyway, um, we went out on a walk as a family, and so uh, our kids and their kids were out on a walk, and the parents were talking, and um, the kids started playing a little game of who could find the coolest rock. Who could find the coolest rock along the side of the road? And my daughter, Chloe, uh, she was probably six or seven at the time. She found a really cool rock. And, I mean, it's a clear game over. Like she found the coolest rock that ever could have been found. And so their little son uh, just started panicking, uh, panicking in fits of jealousy. And you should know as a little bit of background that their family and our family have two very different parenting philosophies. Okay, so the Cloud family, we do discipline our kids. Uh, They adopted the parenting philosophy of they're never going to discipline their kids and their kids grow up and don't have friends, Um, which is a legitimate (laughs) option, but um, that was more their parenting philosophy. Just their kids get to do whatever they want to do. They never get told no. And so anyway, in this fit of jealous rage that Chloe had found the coolest rock to be found. Their son found a rock. It was kind of a lame rock, but he picked it up and he threw it at the back of Chloe's head. And thankfully, he doesn't have a career in baseball. Um, Chloe was fine. But I'm sitting there and the parents are doing nothing. 
And so my dad instinct kicks in. I run over to this little boy and I scoop him up in my arms, physically restraining him. For the record, because this is being broadcast on YouTube, I did not spank him. I wanted to, but I did not. But you could tell by the look in the kid's eyes that this had never happened to him before. I don't think he had ever had an adult look at him and tell him no. He clearly did not like being disciplined. But the bottom line is he needed it. He needed one form of discipline or another, even if he didn't like it. And we all know that discipline doesn't feel good. But if it's done in the right way, discipline is good. Often in our life, discipline does not feel good. It can actually feel quite agonizing. And that's what we see as we take a look at number two on your outline. As a result of the Lord's anger, we see now number two on your outline in verses 10 through 17, a description of the people's agony. Lamentations chapter two, let me read for you first, verses 10 through 12. And notice the people here. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground, they are silent. They have thrown dust on their heads, they have girded themselves with sackcloth. The virgins of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My, Jeremiah, my eyes fail because of tears. My spirit is greatly troubled. My heart is poured out on the earth because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. When little ones and infants faint in the streets of the city, they say to their mothers, where is grain and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Again, not an uplifting message, but a painful reality and description of the agony of the people of Judah. Notice again the people here in these verses, the elders, the virgins, young women and children, no one's exempt from the agony of the Lord's anger. The elders are sitting on the ground and silent, they've girding themselves with sackcloth and ashes, a posture of repentance. The virgins of Jerusalem bowing their heads to the ground. And most painful of all are the cries of the little ones, the babies in the streets saying to their mothers, where is food? I'm hungry. Fainting like wounded men in the streets of the city as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't get more horrific than this. But this was the agony of sin, of disobeying the Lord, of continually turning their backs against him. And as we continue in verses 13 and 14, we see Jeremiah himself is at a loss for words he says, how shall I admonish you? To what shall I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what shall I liken you as I comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Notice verse 14. Your prophets have seen for you false and foolish, 
visions. They have ex- not exposed your iniquity to, so as to restore you from captivity, but they have seen for you false and misleading oracles. Jeremiah, it's as if he doesn't even know what to say. As he looks at the, the sin and the consequences of sin in the life of the people of Judah, he says, to what shall I compare you? He says, your, your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Implied, no one. This is as bad as it has possibly become. Even your own prophets have seen for you not truth, but false and foolish visions. They've not exposed your iniquity or sin, but have given you false and misleading oracles. In other words, even the religious leaders can't be trusted. This is as bad as it can get. And to add insult to injury, notice verses 15 and 16. We see people walking by mocking and taunting the city of Jerusalem, the daughter of Zion in her agony. All who pass by along the way clap their hands in derision at you. They hiss and shake their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city of which they said the perfection of beauty, the joy to all the earth? All your enemies have opened their mouths wide against you. They hiss and gnash their teeth. They say, we have swallowed her up. Surely this is the day for which we waited. We have reached it. We have seen it. So as the people of Judah are suffering in their sin, as they're agonizing in the consequences of turning their backs against the Lord, Again, to add insult to injury, people walking by are just mocking, taunting, hissing. Is this Jerusalem, the great city, the city of perfection and beauty, a joy to all the earth? In this day, it's interesting, Jerusalem was known to be a beautiful city. One rabbi said that he who has not seen Jerusalem in its glory has never seen a beautiful city. And you can imagine Jerusalem in its heyday, the temple there, and the gold and the sunlight radiating off of it. It must have been a majestic sight to see. The Talmud, which is an old document, oral law, it says God gave ten measures of beauty to the whole world Nine ended up at Jerusalem, and the other was dispensed throughout the rest of the world. And certainly, Jerusalem in its heyday, there was nothing that compared to it. But also in the Talmud, it says, ten measures of suffering were given to the world. Nine were taken by Jerusalem, and one for the rest of the world. And when you read about the amount of suffering that has come upon the city of Jerusalem and the people of Israel. Uh, Really, it's incomparable. But we see here the beautiful city has been destroyed and those those walking by are mocking and taunting at its destruction. But once again, we must ask the question, why? Why is all of this taking place? Notice verse 17, the one behind it all, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has accomplished his word, which he commanded from days of old. He has thrown down without sparing, and he has caused the enemy to rejoice over you. 
He has exalted the might of your adversaries. Once again, we're reminded here in verse 17 that at the end of the day, it's really not Babylon who's behind all of this. It's the Lord God. The Lord has done what he purposed. He accomplished his word, which he commanded from days of old. I told you this last week, but I want to remind you that what I think Jeremiah is referring to here is that covenant in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. A covenant that God had entered into with the people of Israel and the terms of the covenant were very clear. He said, listen, if you obey me, I'm going to bless you. Things are going to go really well in your life if you just obey me. But on the other hand, if you disobey me, I'm going to discipline you. Things are going to go quite terribly in your life to the point that I'll even kick you out of the promised land. I'll kick you out into exile. And that's exactly what we're seeing taking place here. The Lord has done what he purposed. He accomplished his word that he commanded from days of old as the enemy of Judah is rejoicing over the daughter of Zion. So we've seen the Lord's anger. We've seen the people's agony. As we take a look at number three on your outline, let's see the response that God is looking for among his people. The people's prayer, verses 18 through 22. Lamentations chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. First, their heart cried out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let your tears run down like a river day and night. Give, no, give yourself no relief. Let your eyes have no rest. Arise, cry aloud in the night. At the beginning of the night, watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift up your hands to him. For the life of your little ones who are faint because of the hunger at the head of every street. Here we see the people's prayer. A section of, of prayer of the people crying out to God in their distress, in their agony at the Lord's anger. Here in these verses we see seven imperatives. Seven things that are to be done. These are the postures of repentance that God is looking for among his people. First, let your tears run down like a river day and night. Two, give yourself no relief. Three, let your eyes have no rest. Four, arise. Five, cry out in the night. Six, pour out your heart like water. And seven, lift up your hands. What's interesting is throughout the Bible, when you see people repenting, these are often the, the postures that they have. Tears flowing down their cheeks, no rest, no relief, arising in the middle of the night, crying out in the middle of the night, pouring out their heart, lifting up their hands before a holy God. This is the prayer of repentance that God is looking for among his people. I also want you to notice the very encouraging phrase there in verse 19, before the presence of the Lord. This 
repentance, these postures of repentance are being done before the presence of the Lord. Implied in this is that God is still there, even though it seems like he is quite distant. God is still there, willing to hear the cries of repentance among his people. God disciplines us, ultimately looking for our repentance. In verses 19 through 21, continuing in verse 19 through 21, we see another description of this consequences of sin, just the ugliness of sin. Again, picking up at the end of verse 19, for the life of your little ones who are faint because of hunger at the head of every street. See, O Lord, and look. With whom have you dwelt thus? Should women eat their offspring? The little ones who were born healthy, should priest and prophet be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? On the ground in the streets lie young and old. My virgins and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered, not sparing. Okay, this is a sobering picture of the devastating consequences of sin. We see young and old dying in the streets, virgins and young men falling by the sword, priests and prophets slain in the sanctuary, and again, most graphic of all, mothers eating their babies for food, cannibalistic infanticide just to survive. And again, as shocking as this is, Deuteronomy 28, 49 through 53, God, years before, predicted this very thing. If you disobey me, this is as bad as it's going to get. And yet the people chose to disobey anyway, to turn their backs to the Lord. As Lamentations 2 closes, we're reminded yet again of who's behind this all. It's not Babylon, but verse 21, midway, you have slain them in the day of your anger. You have slaughtered, not sparing. You called as in the day of an appointed feast, my terrors on every side. There was no one who escaped or survived in the day of the Lord's anger. Those whom I bore and reared, my enemy, annihilated them. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? This is a great passage. But it's in here for a reason. Lamentations 2 describes in poetic form the ugliness of sin. Like I said earlier, I think one of the things we've lost as a culture is the reality that, yeah, God is loving. He loves you. But God is also very wrathful and angry towards sin. And God will go to amazing lengths to open our eyes to the reality of our sin. God disciplines those he loves, and often discipline is not pretty, as we see here. Like I said earlier, there are two repeated words in Lamentations chapter 2 that I think really unlock the meaning of the chapter. The first word is anger. The word anger is repeated six times in Lamentations chapter 2. 
in the beginning verse and in the ending verse, uh, forming a, a bracket to the entire chapter. Lamentations chapter 2, in many ways, is about the anger of the Lord. Now, what you and I need to understand about God's anger, God's anger is different than our anger. God's anger is legitimate and controlled. He never loses his temper. He never overreacts. But make no mistake about it, God, uh, make no mistake about it, God is angry towards sin. But God uses his anger, he channels his anger and his discipline of us ultimately to bring us back to himself, to get us to open our eyes, to capture our attention. The second repeated word we see in Lamentations chapter 2 is the word daughter. The word daughter is repeated 12 times in Lamentations chapter 2. One is often left untranslated but it's 12 times repeated in Lamentations chapter 2. And the shocking thing about the chapter is that the anger of God is directed towards his daughter, the one he loves. Sometimes people ask the question, how could a good God punish evil? How could a good God do this? I think the better question is, how could a good God not punish evil? How could a good God not do something about the wickedness in the world? There's a third century writer, Lactantius, who argued that for someone to be in the presence of evil and not become angry would itself be wrong. Just like a mother who, seeing her infant nearly choking on a plastic yellow marble and not intervene would be wrong. For God to see the evil among even his own people and not intervene would itself be wrong. Loving parents intervene when their kids do wrong. And a loving God intervenes when we do wrong, even when it's painful. The great C.S. Lewis writes in The Problem of Pain, pain plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. Pain plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. In other words, God disciplines us to break down those fortress walls of our rebel souls to lead us to repentance, to open our eyes to the reality of our sin. Like I said last week, repentance describes a change. Charles Ryrie defines repentance as a genuine change of mind that affects the life in some way. It affects the way we live. George Whitfield says, true repentance will truly change you. True repentance will truly change you. And Spurgeon said, Repentance is a radical change which shall make you loathe what you once loved and love what you once loathed. But Lamentations chapter 2, I think its purpose is again drawing us to repentance. We're confronted with the ugly reality of sin of sin perhaps to its ugliest point of cannibalistic infanticide. 
but it's there, it's here in an inspired word of God to open our eyes to see just the ugliness of our sin. This really is one of the ugliest chapters in the Bible, in my opinion. And it's matched only by the beauty of the gospel. The ugliness of Lamentations 2 is matched only by the beauty of the gospel. That when we realize we are all sinners deserving of the wrath of God, the anger of God, the eternal wrath of God, and yet this tension between the love of God and the wrath of God uh, finds its ultimate answer at the cross of Jesus where God put his wrath on his own son so that you and I can be forgiven. And listen, this morning, if you've not put your faith in Jesus, if you don't know that the very ugly wrath of God towards you was placed upon the Son of God, if you've not put your faith in him, I want to encourage you, I want to invite you to put your faith in him. To know that, yes, you may face the discipline of God, but you will not face the wrath of God because of the redemption we have in Jesus. If you've not put your faith in him, I want to invite you uh, to put your trust in him and in him alone. And the good news of the gospel is this. I want you to listen to this quote from a man, Jack Miller, in his book entitled Repentance. He says, the father in the gift of his son has put himself under eternal obligation to returning children. Having satisfied the demands of his own holy law, the father must open his mighty arms and embrace every returning child. He must do it every day. He has promised to do it and God cannot lie. In other words, because of what Jesus did on the cross, God himself has bound himself by covenant to open up his loving arms to you. When you repent, when you turn to the Lord, we can rest in the eternal and loving arms of God. And so knowing that you're forgiven, knowing that you're redeemed, knowing that you've been reconciled, your one thing I have for you this week is to set aside just a little bit of time to really intentionally, thoughtfully pray and ask God to reveal those areas in your life that need repentance. And we all do. We all have those areas in our life, those good luck charms, those get out of jail free cards, those things we do, those things we turn to. And so I would encourage you to, as you embrace the gospel, to spend a little bit of time praying about those areas of your life that need repentance. And so to close us this morning, I want to lead us in the same prayer of confession that I led us in last week that we'll do every week as we go through this series in Lamentations. Would you bow your head with me? Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker and judge of us all, we do acknowledge and lament our many sins and offenses which we have committed by thought, word, and deed against your divine majesty, provoking most justly your righteous anger against us. We are deeply sorry for these our transgressions. The burden of them is more than we can bear.
have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Forgive us all that is past and grant that we may evermore serve and please you in newness of life to the honor and glory of your name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Take a moment to silently confess your sin to the Lord. Father, as we are confronted by the ugliness and the consequences of our own sin, we find our only comfort in the gospel of Jesus, that he on the cross laid down his life so that we can be forgiven. We thank you, Father, that as your children, as those who try to walk in fellowship with you, that when we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. Father, thank you for loving us when we are so unlovable. Thank you for forgiving us, for redeeming us, for saving us. And Father, as painful as it is, we thank you for disciplining us so that at the end of the day, we might become more like your son. Father, help us, yes, to see the reality of our sin, but help us also to see the abundance of your grace, your forgiveness, your mercy, your love. And Father, now as we sing our praises to you, help us sing out with hearts rejoicing of those who have been redeemed and forgiven. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.